Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Product Coalition podcast. It's great to have you listening in again. Today I'm sat with John Vandor who's going to be talking with me about so your engineers want to rewrite the whole system. Many product managers have been in that situation. Before we get started, I want to give a big thank you to Proud Mary as our location sponsor where we're recording this today in Collingwood. Proud Mary is a speciality coffee roaster, cafe, coffee educator and retailer based in Melbourne, Australia and also over in Portland, Oregon in the USA. I'm personally fortunate to uh, help out with Proud Mary, so a big thanks to all of the Proud Mary coffee team here in Melbourne and Portland, Oregon. To find out more about Proud Mary coffee in Australia, Head over to proudmarycoffee.com.au or in the US, it's proudmarycoffee.com. I personally recommend, though, to get down to the cafes in either location to experience the story of Proud Mary, the coffee and the potato hash, which is my number one favourite and uh, is the one I rave about all at a time. Let's get going. John, welcome. G'day. Thanks for joining me. To give some background for... Everyone listening, John and I go back from to 2012 in terms of a first working experience t- together uh, and we've remained good friends uh, ever since and have had a few shared experiences in our <laughs> career paths along the way. To be honest, the topic today of so your engineers want to rewrite the whole system is in fact our opening story yeah. of how we first met each other through rewriting a whole system and all of the war stories that went with that. Um, it's important I give that co- that context for everyone listening because John and I have known each other a long while, so you, we, we're going to try and bounce off each other and keep this probably one of the most informal conversational um, podcast episodes I've done because we've got a sh- lot of shared stories that we'll be able to talk through. John, for everyone listening, do you mind just sharing your career background and, and you, you, where you got to and where you are today? Yeah, sure. So I, um, I was born and bred in uh, Brisbane, Australia. And uh, then I, I went to the Sunshine Coast and did my university education there and then started working for the local government for a little while. Um, all sorts of fun things like mapping and uh, asset valuation and a broad range of things that you do with local government. And then I came down to Melbourne um, to sort of make my name in the big city and um, got a job at, uh, uh, in auctions, which was really interesting. My first exposure to a really big high-scale e-commerce environment, which is... If that thing goes down, it's half a million dollars an hour. <laughs> it's a uh, good high pressure. Really introduced me to uh, to high scale engineering, which was uh, where I found my passion, I guess. And then I moved into um, more of a startup scene where uh, you know we we started um, you know doing high scale projects together at that point, yep, <laughs> and, yep. uh, and then it sort of evolved from there uh, into fintech, uh, which is where I am today. So it's been a bit of an evolution, but uh, I think each of those little pieces of the journey has, has sort of helped form. Um, you know where I am today, and, and the the ideology I bring to uh, to development for sure. Thank you. Thanks. We're gonna uh, we're gonna run through some Melbourne questions because we're it's the Melbourne theme of podcasts uh, at the moment. About. So um, being a Queenslander, this is going to be <laughs> yep. unique. Uh, your favourite tea or coffee joint in Melbourne, John? Uh, Hopeton Tea Room. Wow. There you Where's go. That? Yeah, I didn't expect that. That's like a it's. Um, off Collins Street, actually, and it's in this little arcade. You have to really try to get there, and there's always a line. Out the I door. know where you mean. Yeah, and uh, it's it's a cake shop, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> it is a fancy cake shop. It's very cake, fancy if cake. For anyone visiting Melbourne, it's it's super it's touristy, it's but amazing. it's it makes some beautiful Instagram photos. It does, yeah. That's, that's <laughs> what I'm there for. <laughs> Favorite lunch venue in the CBD? Oh, that's that's really tricky. 
Um, I don't really get much to the CBD, but um, I really like Chinatown any time of day. Yeah. Uh, because it's it's something that, you know, I've been traveling a lot to America in the last few years and it's something you just don't get uh, in the US, that's for sure. And even in Melbourne, it's kind of, you know, there's we have extremely good Asian food here. Um, and Chinatown is just sort of like the pinnacle of that. Um, so, yeah, that's that's probably my pick for lunch and dinner. Awesome. For anyone listening in Melbourne, I think it's the second oldest Chinatown in the world after wow. San Fran. And um, the reason for that, a lot of Chinese came over to Melbourne during the gold rush in the 1850s, back when Melbourne, I believe, was one of the most valuable cities on the planet due to the gold rush. Yeah. Um, that's about all I know about <laughs> Melbourne history, to be honest. Um, best tram route, John. I know you're not too much of a tram man. Not really a tram man. Um, I do have a tram right outside my front door that takes me to the CBD. I've never tried it, but... You have a lot of things, <laughs> Any numbers? Yeah, uh, every minute there's a tram. Yeah. Um, so that's pretty fantastic. But uh, yeah, not a, not a big tram fan. Meetups or conferences in Melbourne? Got any favourites? Yeah, there's some really great ones in Melbourne, actually. So um, uh, DDD, I don't know if you've uh, been to that one, which is Domain Driven Design um, awesome. in Melbourne. And it's a really great developers conference. It could also stand for developers, developers, developers. Um, <laughs> I don't know, uh, but um, I'm pretty sure it's a major design. But that's a fantastic conference. It's usually done by um, actually some of the universities get involved and they, they right. sort of do it as an outreach to the developer community to start getting their students a little more exposure to the development scene and a bit more of the, the alt um, side versus the you know the formal learning side. So it's, it's more startups, it's more new tech. It's, it's really interesting. Cool, cool. Thank you. Okay, let's, let's get stuck into the thick of it. So your engineers want to rewrite the whole system. Mm, must be Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> or AWS have released something cool and new, or oh Google yeah. Cloud. Okay, 100%. so um, let's get going, John. Um, it, it, it's common and it's familiar uh, in terms of a theme to a lot of people who are going to be listening. First talking point here is is value creation and, and the psychology of the rewrite. Can, can you talk us through some experiences there? Yeah, I mean, I, I've had to fight this urge myself a few times <laughs> when you look at something and uh, you go, oh, well, now that I understand all the context, I can write this a million times better. Um, and it's, it's always that, that insane, well, it's not really a fallacy, but it is. it holds true that coders tomorrow are always better than the coders today almost in that they've learned a lot more about the domain, they've learned a lot more about the problem. Uh, if you got that developer to write that same thing just after he finished it, it would be better, right? Yep. So. It's always that uh, that temptation of looking at it and going, oh, now I understand all this business context that I didn't have when I planned it and didn't have when we carted it out, we talked it through, and et cetera. I could now build this thing 100 times better. And if that happens straight after finishing a feature, imagine what happens after a few years. You start to see the cobwebs and you start to say, well, you know, this, this whole thing feels like it needs a big kick, uh, basically. And there's some new shiny things that we can put in and it can be so much easier and um, so much better to maintain. But I think the... The psychology of it is very, very much um, related to that dopamine hit of making something new. Yeah, I, I mean that I'm a victim to it myself. Yeah, it's it's very, very fun to uh, to make a thing, yep. as Jay would say. Yeah, <laughs> it's one of the um, the things that I'd get called out on constantly because it's really quite exciting and fun, and that's that's kind of why a lot of developers are in the game because uh, it's something that keeps them engaged, and it is it's a it's a thing in your brain that um, you know is that that itch that you want to scratch. Yep. Um, so the psychology behind it's pretty easy to understand. I mean, it's it's one of those things where I can do something that makes me feel good and challenges me and makes me think, and that's why I'm in this game to start with. Um, and if I can get an excuse to do that on a grand scale, I will. Um, 
So it's about tempering that with, you know, the reality of making money and keeping your business together. And and also it's uh, it's sometimes not all it's cracked up to be. <laughs> um, yep. So, you know, once you get into the thick of it and you're in the trenches, uh, you know, it looks like a great idea from over there. <laughs> but yeah. Once the, the bullets start flying, uh, it can it can be a lot more complicated than you could ever believe it would. That's it. The the GCP or AWS demos are always oh, yeah. picture perfect and fall <laughs> together beautifully. Uh, what I what I've found when we're working together over the years is where we've carved out time for engineers to actually be able to experiment or spike on mm-hmm. technologies, be able to carve that time away separately from value creation within the sprint and let them really experiment and scratch that itch. Oh, yeah. What does this thing actually do um, without it? And then that way you can prove it out rapidly. There's no pressure on them. And they've been able to to get that dopamine hit, oh yeah. but without it coming at uh, a commercial cost to the code base or, or anything like that. And evolution is never as fun as revolution, right? Yeah. Um, incremental in, you know, changes. No one throws you a parade for you know fixing that bug. Um, yep. Whereas if you launch a brand new system and it's suddenly better and faster and you know, happy days... Uh, and you don't have any cataclysmic issues, um, which is a massive caveat, <laughs> um, then, you know, everyone, there's a lot of adulation. There's a lot of um, positive reinforcement that comes from the business, and, you know, now they've got all these new abilities, et cetera. Uh, and that's that's also a part of it as well. I mean, the um, like I said, there's, there's no parade for maintaining. Um, whereas if you can revolutionise everything that business does, that's a, a fantastic kick for everybody. The business is, you know, singing... Uh, the business people are happier, the technology people are happier, everything's great. But to get to that, you have to really go through the darkness a lot of the time. Yep. Um, you know, these things are tremendously complex if you're yep. working at any kind of scale. Um, and that's that's where the, you know, that psychology of that, you know, what we do for the dopamine hit um, can sometimes be detrimental to the business. So, yeah, um, quarantining that out into spikes is tremendously um, successful. Not only does it get those developers who are, you know, better, <laughs> frankly, who are uh, who want to push the envelope and don't want to just sit there and do the same thing day after day. It keeps them engaged and it keeps them locked in um, because they get to, uh, you know, flex that intellectual muscle a bit without endangering the system. And sometimes they deliver truly exceptional results. And you go, wow, that is actually fantastic and let's put that on the roadmap. But it also, a lot of the time, has proven to be a piece of junk. <laughs> well, and, that, and that's what I, th- I think why it's so important to cut it away. We've spoken a lot over the years about the psychological safety of the team and it, for an engineer to be able to experiment on a new piece of tech and not have to have a so that. Um, yeah. To be able to experiment on a tech and there may be no commercial benefit and that's cool. We're okay with that and I think that's r- really important. But I do uh, appreciate there's also the other end of the scale, which is the different type of engineer that just wants to stick and stay in their comfort zone with the so technology and sees new technologies, ways of do, ways of working, etc., as possible threats um, to their situation. Absolutely, and um, to be honest, you, you do need a mix. Um, you need some people that love to come in and fix bugs. Yep, you do, and you also need the you know the the more out there guys that just and girls that just love to get in and get their hands dirty, uh, because that's how you push things forward. But um, you know, if you have too much of one or the other. Uh, if you have too many, um, you know, loose cannons, you're going to sink the ship. <laughs> if you have too many, um, you know, no, keep it the same, you end up going backwards because yeah. it takes a certain amount of momentum just to stay where you are uh, in this game. And if if you're not innovating, at least in little ways, then you start to slide back down the slope. Um, and uh, but yeah, I have seen both extremes where you've 
you know, you've hired too many fantastic devs uh, without thinking about the, the mix of, of what you're actually going to need to run this in day-to-day because what, what will happen, you'll do the new great shiny thing, then they'll do the next big great shiny thing. <laughs> you'll never finish um, yep. the upgrade and you yep. end up in this constant cycle of risk and chaos and to manage chaos, you put in process and then the process frustrates the amazing people that you hired and then they leave and then you're stuck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a vicious cycle. So w- where I think... W- if I think back to since we met 2012, last seven years, um, where our mindset has probably matured and evolved is that hypothesis-led design um, and bringing that into engineering practices. So not just being a, a product management or product design approach, but being an engineering approach as well. Um, that hypothesis-led design and using data to inform architectural decisions, particularly around a big system rewrite, a system rewrite is so complex. That's therefore, a ton of hypotheses. How, how do you go about breaking that down and, and breaking down a whole system in, in terms of a rewrite? Yeah, um, crying helps uh, <laughs> <laughs> a whole lot. Um, usually, so the uh, what I found is um, you know before uh, you came into my life, the way that we would do this <laughs> is we would sit down, we'd whiteboard it out, and say, you know, these are the most important moving parts um, from an engineering perspective, not from a business perspective. Uh, and that's that's pretty important because there's a fundamental shift coming. But um, this is the way we used to do it. We'd sit down and say, what are the things that are costing us money right now? What are the things that are on fire? Um, and let's prioritise you know, how we're going to fix these big pieces and the, the core architecture, the backbone of the system. That's what we'd usually focus on. And we'd sort of um, leave the ancillary parts to later. You know, ah, sending an email, that's easy. Who cares? Um, but taking transactions, that's that's super important and super interesting. So let's do that. And how are we going to take you know lots and lots of data in and all these different you know big complex problems that, that run that backbone, and then we'll sort of deal with the also ands after. Um, one of the changes that happened once we started getting more of a product mindset into the business was, as you say, this hypothesis-driven development, and we noticed a bit of a shift in that um, you know we're we're no longer taking these uh, <laughs> these also ands these edge cases as you know these little tiny things that we worry about later. We're bringing them up front. And we're sort of seeing, you know, that some of these things are really important. Um, and that, that sort of, that different mindset away from the core engineering piece, as I say, if you leave us alone, we'll sit there and we'll, we'll go into a dark room and think about the, the backbone of this thing forever um, versus shifting it to our hypothesis, which is, you know, client-focused or customer-focused or, or focused on the end user, the, the sort of people that are actually going to be using this thing at the end of the day. So... That shift actually helped the engineers as well. It actually provided more quality of life for them because they could see the result um, and the people that they're going to help by doing this thing. Uh, it was actually a really, really interesting shift. But to break these things down, I mean, they're, they're tremendously complex and they don't actually have to be Big Bang, which is funny coming from me. But uh, <laughs> as someone who has Big Bang, a <laughs> lot of things in life. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it is obviously the most risky approach. Um, and it also it sort of gets rid of a lot of hard questions, like how are we going to just shift these things while they're live? How are we going to keep running the business while we change out the tyres, while the, the vehicle's in motion? Um, it gets rid of all those hard questions, and it's, it's a cheap way of doing it from an intellectual perspective, but um, something that's not as exciting is this incremental change that, uh, that we are talking about earlier, and this is what this, uh, this hypothesis-led um, thinking sort of leads to, which is, well... In that case, if we're just trying to do X, then we don't really need to do you know, Y through V. Um, what we can do is actually just fix 
this thing and that solves that problem for that person. And then we incrementally change. And then eventually we get to the point where you know, we're replacing these bigger pieces but safely. And it's slower but it's safer. There's less chaos. There's less you know, um, downtime. The till keeps ringing as it were. Yep. Yeah, I think about that hypothesis approach within engineering as well gives gives again more certainty that it's safe to develop this thing and it's okay for it to fail. But yeah. uh, the other benefit is that there's a clear definition of success with the hypothesis. That, that we have to have um, something to to say yes, it proved true or or false. And I think that it was really important is the culture that if the hypothesis fails, we developed a feature. And it didn't work. No one used it, no matter what data we quiet. collected during the design <laughs> phase. Um, it's okay. It's yeah. okay. And we can, we can s- s- sort of celebrate that, yeah. essentially. Um, mindset's been, been valuable to us, but also um, new tools that have enabled us to experiment on hypotheses. If you think about launch darkly and the feature yeah. feature flagging and canary testing and kill switches, like we never had that stuff seven years ago, yeah. or we didn't think to have it, <laughs> one of the two. Well, if we did, we'd be billionaires. <laughs> um, <laughs> but even things like Octopus, um, yep. having the ability to roll back a release instantly, uh, you know, as opposed to uh, how we used to have to do this thing with bin deploys and all sorts of stuff where you'd give it off to a DevOps team and they'll zip the thing up and drop it onto a server and then you'd pray, um, you know, where we can now push hundreds of times to production safely a day. And that just changes the whole game. It means that you can do these smaller incremental changes and you can see if it works and you can put it, as to your point, with Launch Darkly, a fantastic tool for everyone that doesn't know about it. It's uh, basically feature flags at scale is a good way to describe it. Yep. Um, so you can launch these features without anyone seeing them um, and then turn it on for a subset, see how it goes, and, and then launch it uh, you know, to everybody once it's ready. But these are the sort of tools that guys like Twitter built themselves and have had forever. Yeah, uh, and it's it's a large part of their success. But they'll they'll launch it to staff only, and then they'll roll it out to just um, you know a wider, a small selection of um, valued users. And then they'll take on the wider audience when they're ready. But I mean that just changes the game in terms of risk. And there's all these little buttons and knobs that we now have to your point that we just never had before. Um, and if you know that's part of the temptation of doing a rewrite, <laughs> frankly, is to yeah. um, to start using some of these fun things. Yep. Well, it certainly makes the continuous improvement more fun as well. Oh, yeah. And you can, see, can treat continuous improvement not as a thing that just has to be done, but as an experiment in itself. And every change is is um, we're hypothesizing about um, when it comes to product market fit. Um, it does make it more interesting. Now, I've got a talking point on here, John, um, about t- tackling the elephant in the room. Mm. Um, <laughs> There's quite well, a well, few. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's go through what, what you're thinking here. Um, we've, we've got some shared experiences on this as well yeah sure i mean um one of the large parts of a rewrite is is understanding the fundamental problems that got you there um so you've ended up at this point where someone has had the brilliant idea to rewrite the system why um and that tends to it could be that well you know there's a very clear problem like we've worked on one before where they're making millions of dollars but they would crash every day um great example that one i was talking about earlier with uh, with auctions i mean if it went down, we lost half a million dollars a day. And, uh, oh, sorry, an hour. And that happened a lot when mm-hmm. I first joined that company. And that's a great incentive for a rewrite right there. You, it's a monetary game. You know, you're, you're constantly losing money every time this thing happens. So, you know, addressing those big furry issues that no one really likes to talk about uh, is super important with a rewrite. And it's sort of the time when you put all your cards on the table because there's, you know, <laughs> if you don't raise it now, we're not building it. 
basically. So there's uh, there's a really, really interesting dynamic that goes on when you start tackling rewrite, which is, you know, what are the big hairy things that we haven't talked about that this thing has to do or are the driving factors behind this rewrite? Is it that we don't trust operations because, you know, we're going to go and build all these guardrails because we don't trust that they're going to do the right thing? Um, or is it that, you know, we need more performance and the database keeps crashing, so we're going to supplement that by doing something else away from that core actual problem to hide it because, you know, we can put a cache in front and everything's better, but not understanding that, you know, invalidating that cache is now the new problem. So you, yep. you're just kicking the can down the road. You're not actually addressing that big furry issue. Yep. Um, so, yeah, tackling the elephants is <laughs> probably my favourite part um, and it's, it's one of those things that can very, very quickly lead to uh, some very interesting conversations. But one of the key tools, and I think we, we found this later than we... I would have liked to, is uh, the Lean Canvas was was yep. probably one of the most instrumental tools in, you know, the a particular rewrite that um, that you and I, when you first uh, joined a certain company, mm. that that uh, really helped us shape our vision for our next you know, iteration, and killed a project worth a few hundred thousand dollars that would deliver nothing. <laughs> Basically, we we're talking about adding some uh, you know some buttons and mm. widgets, and um, there was no value to the customer there, but no one was asking that big furry question of, well, <laughs> what is this going to deliver to our customer? Yeah, what's to say that? Yeah. What's the why? Yeah, exactly. And that's uh, that's instrumental. And without asking that big, big, occasionally looking, you know, a little silly question, um, you don't get those sort of things like, oh, well, actually there's none. <laughs> it would look prettier. Yeah, it'd um, be fun. But yeah, it'd be fun. That's the value. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, w- one, of the th- one of the ways you can end up in this situation is tech debt and um, we've spoken before about uh, and I know from meetups we've been to tech debt and ultimately that ended up in tech bankruptcy (laughs) yeah what's your thoughts on tech debt dealing with it day to day preventing it ending up as technical bankruptcy why do you think that that happens on a day to day is it culture skill set mindset motivation uh, a lot of the time, so there's there's a, a big trade-off there between tech debt and you know, bugs and so forth, and which yep. is tech debt, uh, by my definition, is something that you've done on purpose to save you time. So you can deliver something, yes, I know it's not optimal that we do X, Y, and Z, however, this gets it out this week, and we know that later we can address these additional things that makes it slightly more usable. That would be a great definition of tech debt. These are things that would be nice to have. And then you've got things that uh, are tech debt related simply because they're just so legacy that it's now morphed into something different. And, you know, it now does 10 loops around the park before it does the thing it's supposed to do, simply because all the other bits have been removed. Uh, That's another classic example of tech debt where you're slowly chipping away at certain things and not realising the impact you're having downstream. Um, And then you eventually end up, yeah, in this this weird situation where you haven't really done anything, but you've ended up tech bankrupt, as it were, where the, the mountain to climb is just too great. And that's actually a lot of the time where you see the engineers go, that's it, we're going to rewrite this thing. Because we've gone tech bankrupt and that usually follows a pretty swift bankruptcy in and <laughs> of itself. Nothing good comes out of bankruptcy. No, no, nothing good. But um, you know, it's, it's interesting. It is, there are some really decent parallels there to the financial world in that you need to pay it down as you go. And if you don't, you're going to end up in a really bad situation. So by stirring in some of those tech debt pieces, uh, and finding that balance, because if, you, if you're spending 80% of your time on tech debt, that's a red flag. You're not delivering new value to your customers a lot of the time. You're just cleaning up stuff. Uh, some of that may not have a direct you know, customer impact, but it makes people feel better. 
Um, you know, it's it's very, very classic when you've rushed through something to start with yep. and then you've gone back and gone, oh, uh, that really needs to a revamp. You know, we're on you know, the third rewrite of a certain piece of technology because every time it's, it's just rushed through, for example. Um, and those sort of situations arise because you haven't been paying to detect it as you go and you're not stirring it into your usual sprints. So... One of the one of the things that's super important is um, that balance of new work versus tech debt in those sprints, because if you go and you sit down, you do your you, you know your sprint planning and you allocate, you know, one hundred percent of your velocity out to new stuff, you're gonna have a problem <laughs> eventually, unless you're properly allocating some time away there to to fix and and keep things running and keep maintaining. As I say, um, if you don't, you slide back down the hill. Um, you know, it takes that certain amount of momentum just to stay where you are. And if you're not constantly checking that and, and checking in with the team and uh, listening and empathising with where they're coming from when they say, no, no, this really needs to, you know, uh, needs to happen. Uh, one of the <laughs> favourite points there is sometimes Rome is actually on fire. Like <laughs> sometimes yeah. the developers are saying, we need to rerun it, and they're right. Yeah. Uh, that does happen. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes it's just smouldering. It's probably fine. Mm. Um, which is probably nine times out of ten. But yeah. <laughs> um, if I think of what's changed for me over the last seven years with regards to tech debt and backlogs, that being the home of where it exists, is is our maturity working together on prioritization models. Um, you know, seven years ago it was in the early days of move things up and down in the what was it Green Hopper yeah, before yeah, it was Jira, up and, down, yeah. um, up and down, and that's that two-dimensional or one-dimensional approach um, to, to more in more recent years using strategic drivers and a weighted approach to, to prioritising the backlog and what, what work um, we go through. Yeah, i got to say that was a quantum leap in, um, in not just the, the way that we can justify um, backlogs. And this is, this is something um, that I think is, is a real... Um, as I say, a huge jump forward in prioritization. That that old simple method back in the day of dragging things up and down, I mean, it, it worked, but the input that you were getting is mainly usually just the product owner. Um, if you're lucky, the product owner and the engineers, um, if, you're, if you're playing by the rules. But, um, you know, by moving this to, to be based around these strategic drivers and having people from the business and people from technology sit down and and talk about the drivers and the, the issue more than its correlation to other things up and down in priority and so forth, results in this really interesting unified agreement. And that's something that we were always lacking. It was something that where you know, the dev team and the product owner would decide, okay, we're doing X, and then the CEO walks in and goes, nope, we're doing Y. And guess what? Y gets done. Um, but by having this collaborative approach, you end up with it being no one's fault. Everyone's kind of talked it out. No, no, look at the strategic drivers. We've decided as, a, as an organisation, this is how they're ranked. If something comes in, it's about compliance. That's now 100%. That's what we're doing today. Uh, and no one gets to override that. And having that understanding, and it helps to build that trust as well, but it also makes it so no one person, and this is something that will be uncomfortable, frankly, <laughs> especially uh, being someone who likes to say, no, no, we're doing that. Yeah. Um, it is uncomfortable to give over the control um, as, a, as a leader, but you have to because now we've got buy-in from the operations team and the technology team. We're not sort of going, no, no, we're working on this other thing and operations are going, great, but this is a massive problem for us. Um, so we now have buy-in. We all sat in that meeting. We all saw, according to the drivers of the business, this other thing is more important and it's not really up for debate at that point. Yep. There are some some things that you might jump ahead of priority for you know like audits and so forth that's happened before, 
but as a general rule, it takes away that that um, you know, anxiety of picking something correctly, but it yep. also takes away that blame. Yeah. Um, to talk through the play for anyone listening, so uh, the tool that that I personally favour is is Product Board, and the, and the play itself, uh, when John and I were, were together, that we're talking about here was. Um, I'd workshop with senior leaders in the business, the strategic drivers of, of the product strategy, and we would uh, agree on weightings behind those drivers, try to keep it down to four or five, uh, and agree weightings. And we'd review not just the drivers, but also the weightings on a quarterly basis, which meant that we could weight, for instance, features or initiatives, propositions that were more, uh, let's say, sales-focused. If we wanted to go really heavy on a sales-based quarter, we could weight sales-based drivers um, heavier than versus regulation. And with each driver, what, what we did was actually assign different owners. So uh, in this instance, John would, would look after the regulatory driver of scoring initiatives and how well they align and have impact on, on our regulatory burden. Uh, our head of sales would um, score uh, initiatives against um, the impact on sales. And we would each person own their driver and the score they gave it. And that's the decentralised piece that we're talking about. But ultimately, as, as the VP of product in that instance, I'm still completely accountable. But I was able to decentralise. And by decentralising the, the weighting and the scoring of initiatives, I was able to, to share power, not, not control power. And that took out a lot of the politics and increased a lot of the collaboration. When some we had operations and sales attending uh, sprint inceptions because they knew a proposition that they'd highly ranked that was now coming into an inception they wanted to be part of that co-creation and 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 uh, shared understanding experience so, so that's the play i recommend for anyone listening if you want to have a study of that um dig out um around strategic waiting for product prioritization if you want a bit more of a read um john you mentioned earlier um trade-offs and i believe that play also helped with trading off things because we had waiting. We didn't yeah. just have trade-offs between it was more for sales or more for regulation or more for tech debt, but we, we intentionally gave those things some weight. Mm-hmm. Um, what else from a trade-off perspective at that system replacement level are you considering Ooh. strategically, I suppose, yeah. at your level at CTR? There's, there's a lot of trade-offs to be yeah. made <laughs> with any sort of new system. Uh, it's one of the, the largest temptations is that it's now a candy store, right? So if we're going to rewrite this thing, let's rewrite it properly. And uh, let's take a little bit of those new AWS features mm. and some of that GCP um, AI stuff and let's, let's stir all that in. Um, and that's that's one of the biggest temptations, obviously, when you start one of these rewrites. But in terms of trade-offs, that's, that'll take time. Um, and is that going to deliver value today or tomorrow or the, or the day after? And I mean, one of the, the, the hardest things to foresee, now that you're playing with a new system, you're playing with a new set of rules. Um, and <laughs> you don't know how long that's... It's always going to take far longer than you think for a start to get that into production. And in the interim, new stuff's probably going to happen. Um, so it's about thinking about upfront the what are we going to do in committing to that? Because at, at all times, you, you never really want to have more than two versions of a system. Um, you know, what it is today and what it is going to be. As soon as you start having three or four, you know, this is Gen 4 and this is Gen 5, you start getting into really, really dark territory. So the trade-offs are all around, um, you know, where we are today versus where we need to be and does that need to be a brand new thing or can that be, you know, can we trade that off for maybe an incremental improvement over here that'll take the pressure off this other thing? Um, It's all this balancing act. Um, And, you know, your your engineers are usually going to be the best ones to do this because it's not... You know, at that particular level where you're talking about you know taking pressure off certain things and so forth, that's an engineering activity. 
Um, but one of the things that product owners can really help with is you know reinforcing the creation of value. And uh, one of the things that will always haunt me in my my darkest days will be your voice saying, "Is the till ringing <laughs> in a certain business that we uh, were both a part in?" Yep. And that was the most important thing. So everything else needs to be traded off to get to that point where the till starts ringing again, right? So if your system is down. It doesn't matter how shiny it is. Um, you know, you need to get that thing back up and get that money churning back through. And that's one of the things that product owners can really help with is that focus during those trade-offs to, to help bring the customer's voice as well to that trade-off discussion to say, well, should it be X or should it be Y? Well, you know, this delivers X value to the customer. You know, we really need to reinforce this value and, and get this thing up and running again. So, yes, this other one's better. Takes two more weeks to do. You know, let's get it out to the customer sooner. And, you know, that helps to inform some of those trade-off decisions about getting that, that additional buy-in from people that the developers don't generally talk to. And yep. bringing those extra voices to the table is tremendously important when thinking about these trade-offs because if you don't, they're not going to ask. Yep. Um, and, you know, sort of forcing your way into those conversations is a very powerful tool. <laughs> yep. So l let's give some more context to, to trade-offs, um, particularly around the decision of rollback or not rollback. Mm. So... Um, Going back seven years, me and you were working for one of the uh, the biggest e-commerce company in Australia, pre-Amazon days um, here, and w we went for a platform platform rewrite, and um, we did launch, and things went bad yeah. in the first twenty four hours. Well, they did, and there was an option to to roll back. Now, if I think about that situation, um, highly emotional, mm. a lot of stress, a lot of money being lost through till not ringing. What would you say you would approach differently now versus seven years ago when the decision at that point in time was roll back or not roll back? And, and in that instance, we actually chose not to. It outweighed continuing and fighting through the flames than it yeah. did to, to revert back. Well, what would you do differently now, do you think? Uh, no, it was perfect, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I, I quite liked the warmth of the flames. Um, yeah, I think the biggest thing we could have done is, uh, and this is this is a classic um, big bang approach uh, problem, is testing that migration far far more, um, and and not relying upon you know just the work of a single engineer to to get that done. I mean that was that was a, um, a real problem by by just sort of pigeonholing that. Oh yeah yeah, we're going to build all this great new stuff, and then we're just going to flick it on and it's going to run. Um, and not taking into account the fact that, you know, well, things are going to have to build. Um, things are going to have to process through. The data's going to have to... That was it. Uh, we were doing a ton of load testing and simulating we millions of visitors hitting the it site, but it still didn't replicate the day-to-day, minute-by-minute operational side of the business, yeah. no matter how much load testing or oh, yeah, soak testing or anything we did. billion of that thing, it would have been fine, frankly. Yeah, but uh, the problem that it, was, it had is... Getting over all those millions and millions of records and then indexing them was really, really tricky. So, and that was something that we'd never uh, encountered before. Putting this up and just hitting go. I mean, once once all the data, and that was actually a key decision point in, in rolling back or not, mm. was the fact that it was a waiting game. As in, well, look, it's up and we can make money, but people can't get their end product right now because the thing is building. But all indications are in 24 hours, it'll finish. And then we're going to be golden, but for twenty four hours we're all going to have to, you know, 
Kumbaya. <laughs> it's gonna be. It's gonna be a little. Lot of grey hairs generated. Yeah, a lot of. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um. <laughs> but, but communication was really critical during that point in time. I mean, it was emotional for all parts of the business: customer support, finance, uh, etc. And um, it was a great experience for learning how to communicate uh, at scale under intense pressure um, when there's, as you say, millions of dollars um, being being lost in the moment. Um, this has been really good, John. One of the last things I wanted... Cathartic. Yeah, <laughs> going down memory lane. Um, uh, I want to talk about s- system rewrite and so many things. Engineers want to... Can, can some types of engineers can want to jump straight into it. Um, cognitive load and what they're actually undertaking um, from a cognitive perspective. Can you talk through some of the experiences on that? Yeah, for sure. Um one of the hardest parts about building a new system is is uh, you know conceptualizing it and thinking about how we can you know it's a very abstract process. You're basically imagining this new world where we're going to use all these new different things and um, some of these things you've never used before, but you're conceptualizing it all in your head. Now you've got a bug that comes in for the existing platform, and you've got this brand new new <laughs> way of doing things, and now you've got to sort of put your brain back into a different mode to solve that problem today. Um, and it's something that uh, that can burn people out, frankly, when you when you go through the process for too long of a rewrite, where you're sitting there, you know, this this thing is going to take you know, a minimum of six, nine, twelve months. Like it's going to take, and that's a, a relatively simple system. It's going to take a long time to do. During that time, you're going to have bugs, issues, quick requests that you have to do for customers. These are still going to happen, and your engineers are going to have to keep both of these things in their head at once. And some people are better at it than others. There are different ways to deal with it. You can split the engineering teams, but the problem there is now the a certain subset of your engineers aren't trained on the new stuff and don't have buy-in and don't you know, aren't informed about this. And you can sort of counter that with meetings, but no one really loves those. Uh, and nothing sort of you know sells it to you as much as getting your hands dirty. So there's there's drawbacks to both sides, but you know the the hardest part here is keeping the old and the new in your brain at once, and how these certain scenarios. That bug has come in and not only are you thinking about how are we going to solve that today to deliver that value, but also how are we going to make the new system account for that in the future? So I don't want to be fixing these bugs twice every single time something happens. So it's about, um, you know, that cognitive load is, is an important aspect not to overlook because it can very easily learn, uh, lead to burnout. Um, you know, developers after going through one of these <laughs> yeah. absolute slogs, some of them get burned out and um, others cope in various ways but it definitely has an impact on the people side of this and what what have you done uh, that's worked for you in terms of managing the energy levels for you as a person and you as a leader beatings yeah (laughs) (laughs) no i find uh i find humor helps a lot uh empathy um are the two biggest things i think and um, I also uh, have been very, very lucky to work with some amazing people um, throughout my career that really bring the room up. And there's certain people that just sort of bring that energy that makes everyone, you know, yeah, things are, you know, we, we don't get caught by the doom and gloom of it um, because, yeah, there's, there's probably going to be more things that come tomorrow. And if you let this one get you down, then you're not going to get back up. Um, so, yeah, we, we sort of keep it very upbeat. We keep a, a very um, relaxed atmosphere in our dev room. When you're managing knowledge workers, it doesn't work the same way as, you know, shift workers or, you know, where you can smack them on the knuckles and say, you're going to stay until this is done. 
Um, you know, that doesn't work. <laughs> it's uh, mixed results, uh, I would say. But empathizing with people and, and also you know, driving them through. Um, you know, some people have families they need to get home and you can't make them feel like they're not pulling their weight because they have to go home and see their wife and their kids and or their husband and the, their family that's that's just not fair on them so it's all about creating that culture of mutual support as well um so it's you know we don't look down on the people that have to leave and we we also don't you know excessively praise the ones that stay because again that sort of has the same effect um, so it's a really, really interesting balance, but generally the way you handle those sort of stressful situations is you, you do take it a bit at a time. Um, we do play a fair bit of table tennis at times, <laughs> but getting people out of that active thinking and into that, you know, that subconscious um, mindset really, really helps as well. So right. it helps them deal and work through this stuff. Right. Great. Thank you. Yeah. This has been good. You had fun? Yeah, no, it's been fantastic. <laughs> well, look, I think there's uh, quite a few more topics we could talk about oh in, yeah. in the weeks ahead. We'll have to do a few more episodes. Um, we've got a lot of shared experiences and um, learnings, values and successes between us over the years. So um, we'll have to um, record a few more. more successes than values. <laughs> <laughs> just, just tips it. Yeah, we'll let history judge. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, everyone, Thank for you. listening to this version of the Product Coalition podcast. Thanks to John Vandor for uh, jumping in and helping helping out and talking through this stuff today. Hope you've all enjoyed this. Thanks to the Proud Mary for the recording location here today in Collingwood and look forward to sharing another episode with you all again soon. Thank you. Thanks.